0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 16th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. What does a strong dollar and the expectation of higher interest rates mean for other currencies and commodities? And why haven't we seen hyperinflation? Steve Hanke directs the Cato Institute's Troubled Currencies Project. We discussed recent events in world currencies this week.
1: Well, the first thing is that the dollar has gotten relatively strong uh, compared to the euro. The dollar-euro exchange rate is the most important price in the world, and, and the dollar is strengthened. Uh, so that's, that's one point. And when the dollar strengthens against the euro, since all commodities are priced and invoiced in dollars commodity prices tend to be weak. Dollar-strong commodity prices weak. So, so that's, that's one story. The, the other story is that dollar-strong emerging market currencies weak, some of them very, very weak. There have been huge depreciation in many emerging market currencies. And and that is really uh, been brought on by the Fact that expectations are that the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, and and the and the Bank of Japan, as well as the Bank of England, will will ultimately be forced to increase interest rates, and and when they increase interest rates, the so-called carry trade will be will unwind. It's it's unwinding now. The carry trade. Explain. Yeah. That. Now the carry trade is is, is this when. Lehman collapsed in, in the fall of 2008. The central banks in the United States and, and, and Europe and, and Japan al- al- already was there, as well as the, the Bank of England, lowered their interest rates. And when they lowered their interest rates and they approached zero, something called the carry trade became fashionable. And that is you you borrow money at almost zero interest in these countries that were quantitative easing. And, and you take the money and invest it in Turkey, Indonesia, China, and so forth that have higher nominal interest rates. That's the carry trade. So you're chasing yield. The central banks, in fact, in the big countries, incentivized people to... Uh, Seek yield and 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 take a lot of risk <laughs> by, by doing. They they encourage risk taking, and and the carry trade. So now what's happening? The carry trade is is re, is reversed itself, and and actually for the first time since 1998, capital flows have been coming out of the emerging market countries, and that's that's the big story now, and that's why you have huge weakness in
0: these currencies. In, in these emerging market countries. Now, uh, you're talking about Latin American emerging markets. There are some countries, like Ecuador, that have, uh, perhaps surprisingly, performed fairly well. They
1: perform well because they they haven't been subject to the carry trade volatility because they are dollarized. They, they use the U.S. dollar in Panama, Ecuador, El Salvador, and, and those countries, in 2014, were at the top of the Latin American uh, performance ladder in terms of GDP growth and, and and relatively good. This is all relative, of course. <laughs> relatively good unemployment picture, and and that's even in places like Ecuador, where where the fundamental economic policies have have gone for years with the Korea administration in the wrong direction. I mean the the, the place is, is goes more and more socialist, more and more interventionist all the time. But the once you're dollarized, like Ecuador is, you you have fiscal discipline. You can't go the fiscal authorities can't go to the central bank and say, hey, we have some wonderful bonds we're going to sell you. You buy them, you monetize our our fiscal debt and You you don't have that game which they
0: play in most emerging market countries. And that's despite policy uh, preferences in Ecuador and other countries that are not particularly productive.
1: Not not particularly productive, but but you have to be careful. Like in Ecuador, 85% of the people actually back dollarization if you look at opinion polls. So, So what happens is that on the big picture, the dollar and dollarization are important because people know that it puts a straitjacket around the, a, a, a kind of irresponsible government. So, so the people actually prefer discipline and, and so forth. The, the governments, of course, don't, don't give them that on, on the, on the micro-policy part because they're putting in
0: more red tape, more interventions, more restrictions all the time in Ecuador. Your expectations aside, if the U.S. and ECB do begin to try to contract their balance sheets, what, what is the result? The expectations are set, but what is the result of that actual substantive policy action? Well, the, the, the policy
1: action, I, I think we, we already have, have, have seen it uh, and, and had the, the, the big blowback for from the expectations, because expectations always lead action. And so, people have expected that the Fed, for example, would increase its interest rates e- even by now. I mean, every everyone thought by September they would start increasing interest rates. Well, they didn't. And 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 one reason they didn't is because it turns out that the U.S. economy is still relatively soft. It, it's growing. The aggregate demand growth in the U.S. economy is only around, in nominal terms, 2.7% per year, and the trend rate is about 5 So aggregate demand is still growing very slowly in the United States. The broad money supply measured by M4 divisia measure is is only growing at, at, at about four percent and and it has been growing actually less than three percent for for a long time the four percent is kind of a, a rather recent jump up and four percent
0: growth for nominal uh, m4 growth is is about right on trend so if they're well behind in beginning the process of retrenchment um why not expect hyperinflation if they're going to, if, if it's, it's possible, it's not unlikely that they'll just continue doing that? Well, the, the hyperinflation uh, argument it
1: just hasn't held water because if you measure the money supply growth properly by a, a broad measure of money, in other words all assets that contain moneyness if you include them all you get like 15 components or something like that in M4 and and that metric has been growing ever since Lehman collapsed at a very slow rate and that's why you have a, a, an anemic growth rate in aggregate demand because as as a monetarist there there is only one real reliable way to look at the determination of nominal GDP growth, and that is to look at the rate of growth in the money supply, broadly measured. Those those are fairly tightly linked, and the the broad money growth has been growing at a slow rate, and so is the U.S. economy. That's why the recovery is one reason that the recovery is so slow. The other reason that it's so slow is that you've had a lot of what what robert higgs is is dubbed regime uncertainty and the regime uncertainty is that the, the the no one exactly knows what the what the policy rules of the game will be and whether their property will be protected as a result of that going out in the future so there's a lot of anxiousness and uncertainty about whether well what What's going to happen with this financial regulation, just this Dodd-Frank regulation in the United States? And this is going on all all over Europe, all all over the world. You you, you have this regime uncertainty. The the other uncertainty that you get is something that uh, Professor Yeager and Professor Coppell dubbed big players. And and the big players are... uh, Big number one, uh, central bank, sovereign wealth funds, uh, friends of the state in in China that that prop up uh, the stock market and things like this. So. A big player is big. A big player doesn't operate on a profit and loss basis. And a big player can have absolute discretion about whether they're going to make a move or not. The big players are getting bigger and more active since Lehman went down. So this puts a lot more uncertainty and volatility into the market. So you've got got three things going on that have slowed growth. You've got... (laughs) Broad money growing slowly. You've got regime uncertainty. And and you've got many more big players in the situation, so it 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 all is like a perfect storm for what we have, and that's in the United States, a growth recession. We're growing, but we're growing at below the trend rate of growth, and and it's all because of government meddling. Those three things that I gave you, they're all tangled up with with more government intervention, more government meddling. And, and and that's the,
0: the the picture as I see it. You mentioned regime uncertainty. How much of that regime uncertainty is accounted for by banks that are sitting on cash and uh, not not? offering it to be lent.
1: Oh, oh they're, they're a huge amount. You, you've got of broad money in the United States. This is, this is the key thing, and I'm glad you reminded me of it, is that most of the money produced in, in all economies is produced by banks. That's not produced by central banks. Central banks produce state money. Banks produce what I call bank money. In the United States now, about 80% of all the money produced in the economy is produced by banks, and and they've been not producing much bank money. The bank money supply is actually a little bit less than it was when Lehman went down. And the reason for that is the regime uncertainty and the fact that you have... These new Basel III regulations, which require the banks to have a a much more capital relative to the assets that they're holding. So, it's all constraining the banks. And you you get people like, uh, in in the debate last night, we we had uh, Bernie Sanders talking about you know, you know the the, the banks and the, the bad banks and, and and this that and the other thing about banks and and uh, cowboy capitalism and so forth. Well, the the banks haven't really expanded their loan book or their risk assets. But Sa- Sanders is right in the sense that the big banks have gotten bigger, but the loans they have outstanding haven't gotten bigger. And and so how how's that happen? they they go into cash and they go into government bonds because those are considered riskless assets and they don't qualify for these Basel 3 regulations so as a result even even though they're earning a, a, a small amount of money on government bonds and cash they they don't have to have any capital to back it up under these regulations so so it, it becomes an attractive place for them to to park their their money, and if they have money in their risk assets, that's commercial loans and mortgages and things like that, normally what we think of as loans and what banks do, they they have to have capital set aside under Basel III to, to back those loans up, and, and, that, and that's
0: constraining them. And when you talk about uh, the assets that they can hold at a discount, essentially, uh, we're talking about sovereign debt of countries that quite possibly are on the rocks themselves.
1: Well, uh, yes, either, either, either on the rocks or, uh, shall we say, on, on, on the edge of the cliff. Those are, those are all
0: possibilities. Steve Hanke is a senior fellow and director of the Troubled Currencies Project at the Cato Institute. Read more about the value of sound money at our website, cato.org.